Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The first event was the broken windscreen. Random can happen to anyone, right? The whole thing shattered. It was quite a traumatic thing. Two days later, same stretch of road, bang, another windscreen broken. The rock went through the radiator. Two days later, again, another broken windscreen on the same stretch of road. Rock came right in this time, took a chip out of the dashboard and landed on the back seat. I think at this point, She said, you know, someone's trying to run me off the road. This is just weird, you know. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. So that that got repaired, and then I'd come home one night from being out and thought, what's that? A tin of paint poured over her car. The next night I came home, she parked it down the side of the driveway so she could keep an eye on it more. The number plate was missing, and I could hear hissing like one of the tyres was still going down. So they'd all been slashed, and the aerial had been ripped off, and the wipers bent up. And ran in, hello, she was on a lunch break, everything all right? Yeah, good. Oh, yeah, I think it's all over now, it's all good, and I'm going out with the girls tonight. I said, oh, that's really good, and all right, well, I said, well, I'm going to the drive-in with the boys. Of course, I never went to the drive-in because I returned home to get showered and changed later and found, you know, my brother crying in the driveway with a neighbour, and I said, what's happened? And I said, oh, your mum, you know, she's, she's, she's gone, she's gone. I said, what's happened to her? And... I don't know whether he said she's been stabbed, whether he said that or not, I don't know. But he said, she's gone, she's cold. Don't go around there. Please don't go around their back. So I didn't. Now, as an adult, being in my own home, I don't feel safe at times because I know what's happened. 
I just would appeal to someone out there that knows something, you know, come on, it's time just to, do they want to take this to their grave? Let us to continue to suffer. I mean, just to, to have someone accountable now would be such a turning point for everyone. These are the real voices of Australian true crime. Support us at patreon.com forward slash pod and leave us a review wherever you download your podcasts. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. It's kind of infuriating. Two of her other friends, you know, go to the police station. They say that Edwina would never have left her daughters. They point out that that the husband had moved his lover in before his wife's spot on the bed had gone cold even. But the officer clearly believed that these women were just overreacting and he didn't even keep a record of their visit. You may recall the shocking story of Singaporean student Ram Tawari from a few weeks ago. He awoke from an afternoon nap in his Sydney flat to find his two roommates had been brutally murdered and he ended up being convicted of the crime. His conviction was later overturned. That story was brought to us by journalist and author Liz Porter, who wrote about it in her book Crime Scene Asia. This week, Liz is back by popular demand with the stories of two women who'd both been registered as long-term missing persons before they were found to have suffered terribly similar fates. Liz, in your book Written on the Skin, you wrote about a case that I've been quite interested in, but there's not a great deal of media that's available because it happened pre-internet. And that's the case of Sylvia Cave, who for quite a few years was a missing person. She had gone missing and people thought that she'd just disappeared. Forensics played a big part in actually finding out what happened to her. So mm. tell us about Sylvia. It dates back to the 80s where, sadly, and I heard someone say this just the other day, that missing persons investigations were often just a matter of opening a file and asking a few perfunctory questions, and that was kind of it. Was Sylvia, for any reason, the kind of person that police might have thought, oh, she's just wandered off? What, what sort no, of- absolutely not. That's the thing. She's a Perth woman. Sylvia Cave. She vanished in October 1989 after a romantic weekend for which she flew to Melbourne okay. uh, with her American boyfriend, a guy called Michael Jeffrey Rice. And his story was that he had driven Sylvia to Tullamarine Airport on the morning of Monday the 18th of October 1989 so she could return home to go to her niece's wedding, so in Perth. But Sylvia Cave never checked in for that flight. So she wasn't the sort of woman who'd ever disappeared before? No. Put it that way. No, not at all. And she had loving parents and a loving family. And her parents, obviously, immediately reported her missing. She's 35 at the time, Sylvia. But in 1989, the Missing Persons Bureau was a place where cases were filed rather than investigated. And the impression that the caves got whenever they called was they were being over-anxious, over-protective, and their daughter was old enough to do as she damn pleased uh, without She's these... an adult, it's not a crime exactly. to go missing, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Her father, Ernest Cave, was so frustrated by the police's slowness to move on this, he actually flew to Melbourne himself to investigate. At her home, he... 
he finds the dress she had planned to wear to the wedding. I mean, this is I'm just appalled that the most basic investigations weren't done and finds the present she'd bought. So very clearly she was intending to go to this wedding. So that this find of the dress and the present, that's proof to him that she never made it to the airport and uh, she had not, as the police were suggesting to him, just taken off on her own. And he also, Ernest Cave, also spoke to the boyfriend. He insisted he'd taken her to the airport, said goodbye to her there, and he also retraced his daughter's steps. He went to the motel where she spent the last weekend with her boyfriend. He even consulted a clairvoyant who who said, one of them said that his daughter was, in inverted commas, cloaked and hidden in a lockup, which in the end wasn't all that um, off the mark. But mind you, as a clairvoyant asking to, I'm a bit cynical here, to check into a missing person's case, well, it, they're probably dead. And if they are dead, then they're probably hidden. You know, yeah, so. probably cloaked. Yes. But then in 1993, so four years later, oh, a new no. missing persons investigation unit was set up in Melbourne these and they started people, looking. These poor people are just in limbo for four years. They're yes. just doing their own investigations the Absolutely. whole time. And it, and it didn't make sense to them, did it, that she just wouldn't have got on that flight or no. gone missing? It's just, you know, look, it's... it's Because uh, if they had investigated at the time in a more aggressive way onto the boyfriend, mm-hmm. for example... Anyway, so they look start opening this this case and in fact the Sylvia Cave case was one of the first cases that this new missing persons unit looked at. The American boyfriend, is he living in Melbourne? No, by then he has conveniently for him back in the States. Mm. So in fact he moved back in March 1991 so he didn't go immediately but when he left he had stored some personal property at the property of some friends in Mount Eliza. So when the police are now finally starting to investigate properly, they go to this shed where he's left some stuff and they find there's a 44-gallon drum supposedly containing computer equipment. So the homicide detectives ask the owners of the property to open the drum and they find what they recognise immediately as human remains. She's wrapped in plastic, her ankles are bound with rope, but she's wearing underwear, suspenders, stockings and pearls. Apparently this weekend that she was spending with the boyfriend, things have been a bit rocky between them and and this was apparently going to be a romantic weekend and and apparently she'd sort of bought some sexy underwear for the weekend. Now, the forensic pathologist couldn't actually, unfortunately, determine a cause of death, but there was a small broken bone in her neck, the hyoid bone that we all, all us... The listeners can't hear, but uh, Meshel is tapping the hyoid bone. We all know about the hyoid bone in the neck. Yeah, which means probably she's been strangled. That's right. And uh, Mm. Rice's car Mm. was still at the property and Sylvia Cave's unused air ticket was Mm. in it. Now, fortunately, when the investigation was first opened um, some years before, her dental records had been sourced so that they were already at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. So they compared her pre-death dental records with the uh, the post-mortem. And yes, it was Sylvia Cave. They could never be absolutely sure of the cause of death. But that suggests to me that they've just had an argument and he's strangled her and then just 
put her body in a barrel and disposed mm. of it. And panicked. And, yeah. But that's the problem because you can't be absolutely sure and that was the opportunity uh, for his defence lawyer uh, at his eventual trial yeah. to go for manslaughter rather than murder. But he, he doesn't seem to have panicked too much about it. Apparently, after she had failed to catch her flight, Rice had taken a day off work. He'd hired a van, bought bags of lime and soil, rented a storage space, and he'd had the 44-gallon drum there. This is when he was still living in Melbourne. And he had visited this building more than 50 times in this time, obviously taking small quantities of sand and lime each time so as not to arouse suspicion, I expect. But his defence lawyer, and he had several defence lawyers, um, he kept sacking them during the trial, but because the pathologist couldn't nominate a specific cause of death, Therefore, he argued that they couldn't convict him of murder but only of manslaughter, which is what happened. He's very nearly gotten away with it, though. Yeah. I mean, well, that's right. I mean, the uh, and as is the case with a, another body in the barrel case that we will discuss in a minute, being able to prove cause of death is absolutely crucial because, well, in this case, there was enough evidence that he was really hiding the body and enough evidence that, that he'd been the last person with her and therefore he was there at at her death, so manslaughter was the possibility. But that hyoid bone oftentimes is the problem, isn't it? Because if the body is decomposed enough, mm. that bone will often not be there mm. anyway. Mm. So they can't even prove that it, it was fractured or mm. that it was moved mm. by virus. Violence. Yes. Did mm. he offer up, did Rice offer up any explanation how no, Sylvia he, died? He didn't have to. Yeah. Mm. That's right, the thing. Of course. Mm. I, what's going through my mind is, you know, there's more awareness about men who use the defence of the rough sex, oh, um, yes. the strangling. Mm. I know there's um, some been some really high profile cases in the UK and in New Zealand recently where there's definitely a lot more awareness. So he was convicted of manslaughter? Yes. What was minimum sentence for him? He got seven years, yes. but four years non-parole, yes. and he'd already served some time in custody. So not really that long. He'd actually mar- he'd moved on with his life, and he was married when they went to get him in the US. Well, yeah, we're embarrassing for his wife, I must say. After the break, the story that will infuriate anyone who identifies as a sport or dancing mum. But first, thank you to the following patrons. Kaz Shell... Lynn Campbell, Lola Adamson, Bryony Harris, and Let the Wookie Win. I couldn't agree more. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Coming up on Australian True Crime, the terrible truth of the location of a missing mum. But first, the background. 
There's another case about yes. a woman called Edwina Boyle who went missing in 1983 and then years later they actually found out what had happened. So tell us about Edwina. This is a case where uh, I'm a, I see the hero, well, there are kind of two unlikely heroes in this case. One of them is the later son-in-law of Fred Boyle because the son-in-law is the one who is very suspicious of a particular barrel that has always been at the house that Fred Boyle has lived in and has moved house with him several times over the years. So he's kind of one hero. And the other hero is the the forensic anthropologist, a woman called Soren Blau, who is an expert at reconstructing broken skulls. And, and she was able to basically, in putting together all the pieces of a what was, when it was discovered, a skeleton, was able to reduce a quite a large hole in a in a skull to a hole that was actually very very small and and fitted the kind of hole that you would expect to be the trace of a bullet hole but um, we're jumping ahead because the story itself is pretty damn extraordinary because you've got this guy called Fred Boyle and his wife Edwina they are skating parents so their two daughters are passionate skaters and in fact one of them is considered to be a pretty much of an olympic hopeful she's only 11 but that's her future it seems and this ice skating ice skating yes so 11 year old carissa boyle she's skating three nights a week practicing it's friday morning and she's got a big competition that night on the friday night when she wakes up that morning, normally her mother's wakes her up, but the morning, this morning mother doesn't appear. She goes into the kitchen. There's her father weeping, apparently inconsolable. Her mother has disappeared. He's found a note and she has apparently gone to Sydney with a truck driver called Ray. No surname. Uh, and she's left everything behind and uh, she's gone. So no sport parent does that. You know I'm a sport parent. No dedicated sport parent would let their child down on the day no, of a competition. No, no. no. With mother, Ray. Um, she with worked Ray. at a local chicken farm, so she was. Uh, but she would always find time to make her daughters, both the daughters, skating costumes. costumes of course, yes. yeah. Um, often spending her lunch time sewing. So the idea that she would disappear at this time in particular was just literally incredible. But extraordinarily. All the skating parents uh, seem to sort of swallow this Really? Story. The other mums? The other mums. Jeez. And even more extraordinarily, effectively the next day after she disappears, um, Fred Boyle shacks up with another woman, another, one of the, another mother from one of the skating group oh who leaves God. her husband and they're suddenly together. No. And no. nobody says anything. This is Chris Dawson. All yes, over again, yes. isn't it? The teacher's yes. pet. Yeah, the no, day, the two days after the wife just walks away from her children, he moves no. another woman in, and everyone goes, "Yeah, it seems legit." Were people too too trusting in the 1980s to polite. believe stuff? I think people didn't get involved in other people's say it, yeah. relationships. Yes, or, or and I, I sometimes at one point wondered whether it was that sort of um, sort of bystander syndrome yeah, where everyone yeah. thinks that someone else should do something. But there were other, fortunately. Well, it didn't do her any good. But Edwina Boyle did have other friends. And some of those other friends started making inquiries of the police. But again, and the police did go and interview Fred Boyle, but he would always give the same story. And it was basically swallowed by the police, this story. What about her family? 
Well, this is the thing. She came from the UK and her family was over there. But it's finally from the family that the police take the report of the missing person a bit seriously. But, you know, it's it's kind of infuriating. Two of her other friends, you know, go to the police station. They say that Edwina would never have left her daughters. They point out that that the husband had moved his lover in before his wife's spot on the bed had gone cold even. But the officer believed that these women were just overreacting and he didn't even keep a record of their visit and, and, and no action was taken. And it took a report made at a police station on the other side of the world by Edwina's older sister, Val, Val Bordley, to actually raise the alarm. So she finally started worrying when, when her sister's regular letters ceased her mother's birthday came and went without any kind of note from her sister. Her disappearance was October and their mother's birthday in November passed without getting a card from Edwina. And then finally in December, another sister received a letter from from the husband saying that her sister had taken off with another man and that Edwina just didn't love him anymore. She'd be planning this for a while. But Val basically was not taking this and she engaged a private detective she contacted Australia House contacted the Salvation Army and then finally in January 84 so it's some months later she went to the police station in Watford Hertfordshire and finally the official missing persons investigation began Isn't that amazing that It, it took that. Yeah, yes. the official message from mm. another police force for them yes. to take it seriously. But the missing persons investigation didn't really uh, unearth anything important. Again, basically. again it went nowhere. Went nowhere. But then in 1993, the Homicide Squad reviewed the case and they interviewed Fred Boyle again. And he wasn't a credible interviewee. You know, they didn't believe him necessarily, but they had no proof. There was no body. He claimed that he'd heard from his brother that Edwina had been in Spain, but then the detectives phoned the brother to check and, of course, that was a lie. But he says to them, you know, thousands of people walk out of their lives and turn up somewhere else. And they didn't believe him, but they couldn't really do anything about it. They searched the Dandenong flat where... Edwina had disappeared from. They pulled but the carpet up. this is 10 up. years later. Yes, yeah. But there was no evidence of a body having been buried on the property. They they looked at the poultry farm where she'd worked, nothing. So they referred the case to the coroner, basically, because there were ample grounds to believe that she was dead. So, again, the detective compiled a, the brief of evidence for the coroner. And, yes, there were plenty of discrepancies in Fred Boyle's account, but without a body... Um, there wasn't much they could do. And by this stage, the children would have been in their either late teens or early 20s. Yes, so that's had, right. Had they kind of remained, they remained loyal to Dad? They had, and, and you can understand that in a way. I mean, yeah. you've already lost oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. one parent. You don't yeah. want to lose two by, by, yeah. by doubting What him. else would you think? It must have been yes. so confusing. Being raised from small you. childhood to yeah. think that yes. that's what happened. It, would yes. not, it couldn't enter your mind yeah. anything else that happened. Yeah. So, But if it wasn't for a man called Michael Hegarty, who was the boyfriend of the older sister, Carissa, the girl who had the skating competition the the day after her mother disappeared. So he 
came into their life when she was in year 12 and he moved in pretty quickly. In year 12, so she was about 17. Yeah, and he began doing carpet laying work with his prospective father-in-law. And so over the years, Hegarty often found himself looking at this big 44-gallon drum. It was in the garage of the Frankston unit. It was big enough to hold a body, he thought. And and then when, in 1992, the family moved to Carum Downs and the drum went with them. It was stored in the carport. They used it as a drink stand for parties. And whenever Hegarty looked at old family photos taken at other residences, he always looked for the drum. He would always spot it in the background somewhere. It was even there when they were living in a caravan park. It just gave him the creeps, and he used to make these very poor taste jokes like um, Fred's probably got a wiener in that barrel, and everyone would laugh, including Fred. Fred Boyle insisted that the drum contained carpet-laying glue that he'd been saving, but it was too old to use and too toxic to drop at the tip. And, but Hegarty was always niggling him about it, And but then Boyle would get grumpy. One time, the son-in-law actually disobeyed him and put this drum on a trailer heading for the tip, and Boyle just went nuts and insisted on having it back again. And finally, in, in 2006, so... Oh, 1983, 2006, finally he just... His curiosity just got the better of him and he, he couldn't open it from the, from the top because it was rusted shut. So he hit it several times with a pick and he managed to get a hole in there. Did he? This bloke, the boyfriend? The boyfriend did this. Oh! But he could tell it there wasn't glue inside, but he couldn't tell much more. But then a few months later, it was his last chance because he and Carissa had decided to separate. They had a couple of kids. But they were still organising a combined birthday party for one of their sons. And they had to, and Carissa had asked him to get all the junk out of the backyard in preparation. So he decided to investigate the drum one more time. He was so curious. And he cut it in half <gasps> with an angle grinder. But even then, he, he looks at it and there's concrete, there's an assortment of women's clothes and there's uh, some carpet and then there's this sort of weird-looking hessian wool bale. And so he's really disappointed. He goes, well, there's no body there. And he didn't even think about whose clothes were there. The, he should have actually thought but maybe he wasn't the uh, the sharpest uh, knife in the drawer, who knows. But in the meantime, he's still working with Boyle and they're doing the clean-up and Hegarty had some, some wheelie bins. So they pack everything up and they're taking stuff to the tip and Hegarty's still looking for this wool bale, but he can't find it. And they take all this stuff to the tip and he's looking at the tip and can't find it there, so he thinks, oh, well, he's obviously missed it. A few months later, they're doing another clean-up because Hegarty's finally moving out. This is just completely by chance. So his father-in-law had a whole pile of tools and he needed to separate his tools from his father-in-law's tools. So he sees the wheelie bin he'd, he'd given to, to Boyle and he opens it and takes out some power tools inside it. There's that Hessian wool bale that he thought had been thrown out at the tip and the one he'd been looking for. So, And suddenly now he's closer to it. He can smell it and it's smelling terrible. And he touches it and he realises there's decomposing flesh. Then he pulls out what looks like a human pelvis and a leg bone. And then he he keeps digging around in the bag and he realises that, yes, it's human bones. And finally he finds a human skull. So he rushes inside, strips his clothes off, takes a shower, 
rings his wife, demanding that she come to the house immediately and gulps down some Valium and they call the police. And the drum goes to the Institute of Forensic Medicine and they um, examine its contents and sadly inside is the dead body of Edwina Boyle. It's completely by chance that mm. he mm. really... Yes, completely by chance. And as I said, he, you'd think he would have missed it. You know, yeah. And it's just that... Boyle had been a little bit careless, I suppose. And he'd been so curious all those years. Yes. But you mm. could sort of even talk yourself out of it going, that's crazy, of that course. theory. But Who else would bother? You know what just mm. absolutely, that when you mentioned that they used to rest drinks on that barrel mm. and it was that yeah. part, is how horrifying. Oh, yes. Horrifying. But, of course, you know, Boyle had to keep it within his sight. There was nothing sentimental about it, just in case anyone ever investigated its contents. So then it's up to the forensic pathologist to to come up with a cause of death. And fortunately, because... Well, there were two things. The forensic pathologist who was doing the autopsy, Malcolm Dodd, is a ballistics expert, which helped. But then he called in Soren Blau to reconstruct the skull. And Soren used a hot glue gun to put the skull back together and so she was able to reduce this 50 by 34 millimetre hole that, that was originally in the skull because there are other bits of other fragments and reduced it to a, a hole with a diameter of 10 millimetres, which was a little bit larger than a .22 bullet but in the ballpark. And then the scientists got some more metal fragments from the skull. They were sent to the police lab and examined under an electron microscope and they found fragments of lead and antimony there which are consistent with the composition of a .22 bullet. And, in fact, Boyle had owned a gun back in the day. But it wasn't for that finding of the bullet hole. It's possible that he might have got away with just uh, the charge of not storing a, a body properly. So he's, he's shot the mother of his children and put her in a barrel. Yeah. And then by morning constructed this whole story by the time his children woke mm, up mm. that she's run away with Ray and... And he stuck to it the whole yeah, time. for 20-something years. Yeah, he had a story uh, and he, he had a very good barrister. He had Jane Dixon, mm-hmm. QC, who's now a judge, and she did an admirable job with a pretty poor story. But mm. his story was that he got home from work, she was already in bed, got into bed, sort of moved over to touch her, realised she was dead, oh, panicked. What? No one's going to believe me. I'm having an affair, so I'd better hide the body. That was his story. And Someone uh, else shot her and he, he yes, just... Yes, mm. yes. And unbelievably, Fred Boyle chose to give evidence. In his, no! Yes. What, a, what a weird guy. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, and his argument was that he made himself a victim, so afraid of the police, you know, because he said, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, he arrived home late, got into bed next to his wife. When she failed to respond, he turns on the light, he sees himself looking at a dead body, and he thought his wife had been shot through the head and strangled with one of his ties, because something else that had been found yeah. in the barrel, actually, a tie. Some and of he realised he, he was in terrible trouble. Who would believe a man who'd been having an affair? And he shrugged off the prosecutor's suggestion that he should have known that the police would have been able to tell whether his gun had been fired or not because he says he wasn't a smart man and CSI wasn't on yet, which is true. So that sort of information wasn't common knowledge at that point. So he, for fear of being framed for a murder he didn't commit, he put his wife's body in a barrel and kept it there for 20-odd years. And served drinks off it. And served drinks off at it, At barbecues. Yes. 
I mean, you have to hand it to the defence lawyer in this situation. I mean, it's a pretty poor uh, oh, uh, material to work with. Yeah. But she, she made a pretty good attempt. She's trying to say to the jury... How illogical is it that a married man would kill his wife on a school night with his children in the house and his brother-in-law due to collect him at seven the next morning? Who would do that <laughs> if he'd really been desperate to end his marriage and take up with his mistress? There were uh, easy ways to do it. Well, certainly, but for reasons best known to him, he shot her. Uh, and clearly the jury didn't believe her argument and they convicted him of murder. But the terrible thing is that the daughters remained loyal to him. Oh, the poor um, things. Yeah. And which was incredibly difficult for Val Bordley, who I did talk to as part of my writing of this story. Val was Edwina's sister. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, um, God knows there is a very recent case that's similar. It, it's just awful when the rest of the world is looking at mm. you and you can't believe your dad killed your mum. I mm. just can't imagine mm. that situation. Mm. Exactly, and it's also the case that if they believe that, then they have lost, as we suggested before, they have lost both parents. I guess it's just too horrible to Mm. accept. Yeah, and that's something that, in fact, Soren Blau, the forensic anthropologist in this case, said that she actually felt quite torn about working on this case. Obviously, it was her job and she was doing it, and she was pleased with the work she had done, professionally speaking, but she couldn't help but think of the painful consequences it was going to have for the daughters. Her reconstruction of the skull basically destroyed their emotional universe, even though they, as it turned out, they resisted that information. But she'd written a chapter in a book called The Handbook of Forensic Archaeology, and she'd made the point that forensic anthropologists analyse remains to provide evidence so that, in inverted commas, justice can be served. But she says... One of the ethical dilemmas is justice for whom? The recovery and analysis of a victim of homicide may contribute to solving a crime and delivering punishment to the perpetrator, but it will devastate those associated with the convicted offender. And she mentioned a UK case in which a man was convicted of killing his wife after having led his three children to believe their mother had left them some 25 years earlier. At one level, justice was served, she says. The father was convicted of the crime he committed. The mother of the victim could later rest her daughter, whom she had believed had abandoned her family. But at another level, the lives of the children were traumatised. Their father had not only lied to them, but had killed their mother, and their mother had in fact not abandoned them, as their father had uh, led them to believe. It's just so complex. That's Liz Porter, and you can find links to her website and social media in the show notes to this episode and on our Facebook page. Thank you to these patrons, Shanti Lavender, Shane Thomas, Kendall Sadler, Janie Waters and George Noons. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week.
Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.